The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Climate change is hard to grasp. It's such a big concept and it may impact the world on such a broad scale that it can be hard to digest what it means for people on a personal level. It's a danger that's constantly growing, but at a pace that makes it sort of easy to ignore. That is, until you're hit by a natural disaster like the ones we talked about last episode. Soon, it's likely that we're all going to feel the impact of climate change in our day-to-day lives. From what we eat, to where we live, to the insurance premiums we pay, climate change will not be a silent danger for much longer. I'm Lindsay Rupp. And I'm Jenny Kaplan. This week, we're looking ahead at what that's going to look like. We're talking about how the changing climate will impact the products we consume and the things we spend money on every day. I think it's important, again, to point to the science behind climate change before we dig further into how it will affect our lives. The U.S. government recently released a report stating that it is extremely likely that human activities are the dominant cause for global warming. NPR reported that the 600-plus page climate science special report is part of the most comprehensive study of the climate ever done by the U.S. The Trump administration has made contradictory statements in response. The report points out that the Earth is getting hotter at a faster rate, sea levels are rising more quickly, rain is getting more intense and frequent, and there's a growing risk of wildfires. So what does that mean for us, for consumers? Here's Dr. Peter Howard, the economics director at the Institute for Policy Integrity at NYU School of Law. Generally, a Economists and scientists often think of a sort of like a a good baseline of thinking is around a three degree increase um, of temperature, two to three degrees. Three degrees is about what we expect the amount of warming from doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere relative to pre-industrial periods. Now, that's kind of an abstract idea, so like three degrees. But you know what what we should think of that is that's some sort of moderate temperature increase getting to Um, medium. But we should always remember that when we're talking about this and setting a baseline, that if we do not mitigate emissions, that temperature will continue and increase something to like four or five degrees by 2100 if we don't do anything, maybe less if we start actually meeting our pledges. Um, And even farther after that, you know, even higher temperature increases after the century. Um, And just to give you a perspective, four to five degrees is sort of the difference between now and the last ice age in temperature. So it's a very large potential increase. And that still understates the risks that we're talking about because there could be, there's a lot of um, risk associated with these uh, different, with the climate, but as well as the economy. So we have a lot of risk because we're leaving what we know to an area of 
really we have not seen in human history. And as a consequence, um, there could be actually very dire catastrophic change. And you could think of this as like somewhat like we're playing Russian roulette with the planet. Whereas even if we miss the bullet, it's still bad. But if we, there is a, there's a chance it's not guaranteed that we could really end up over an economic cliff. As inhabitants of the planet, gambling away its future is going to come back to bite us. Um, the most common we would think about is lost property or infrastructure due to flooding and sea level rise, and that will uh, inundate areas. And as we have storms and we have a higher sea level rise, that will actually make floods worse from storms, such as the hurricanes that recently hit Houston um, and Puerto Rico. Similarly, you would expect along those lines that insurance costs prices will go up for businesses and consumers because for two reasons. One is you have these higher damages that you're expected to face. But there's another problem, which is that baselines are actually going to change and we're going to have more variability. So it'll be harder for insurance companies to sort of predict what the expected damages that they will get that they have to make some profit on. So it might really affect the insurance industry quite a bit. Um, along those similar lines, I mentioned that there's some evidence that particularly jobs outside where we're out in the climate, you know, we're outside doing farm work, for instance, that that will have lost productivity because we're outside and affected by temperatures. And we might actually just have reduced labor supply as people are like, I don't want to work in very hot temperatures or just can't. Similarly, there's a lot of predictions about uh, lost human life as well as uh, morbidity, so injuries from um, heat and other diseases that are incubated, and that would increase medical costs. So we should see some sort of increase in medical expenditure related to climate change. Um, fisheries as well will be negatively affected, so seafood costs would likely increase. And this is factoring into already existing pressures. So fisheries are obviously, there's overfishing problems, so climate change will have an effect on that. And then the most commonly talked about probably is agriculture. People think about agriculture. Agriculture is really complicated because it's a tradable good. So that can offset some of the impacts in one region versus another, as well as there are some positive effects of CO2 in the atmosphere called CO2 fertilization, which will increase yields. So there's an ongoing debate in the short run, will there be benefits or costs? But there's pretty certain in the medium run to long run, so three degrees, you know, that two to three degree range by mid-century, um, four to five degrees by end of century, there'll be negative effects. Um, in that case, we would see increased food prices like we did in the 2007, 2008 food price spikes, where there was a lot of unrest around that. So there are going to be climate sensitive sectors. So what that means is it's sectors that are directly impacted by climate change. So that would be things like agricultural production. Grocery shopping these days feels pretty removed from the land. I mean, you can get pretty much anything at any time, regardless of the season. If I want an avocado in New York City in January, no problem. Still, the food we eat and drinks we drink are agricultural products. They're very much impacted by climate change in the U.S. and all over the world. Climate change is a global effect. It affects us globally. 
So interestingly enough, even impacts outside the United States, particularly due to connections in the production chain and through human migration, can actually, impacts in other regions can actually affect the United States. Some increase in temperature might be beneficial, but then there's other effects, which is hotter temperatures. You could have extreme drought. And we can see that those would be negative for agricultural crops. Um, so right now, there's probably a low level of agricultural impacts in the United States. However, I would note that in developing countries where they're more dependent on rain-fed agriculture and may not have access to markets, um, that could be a more extreme problem because they might not have access to global food markets the same way that the U.S. consumer does. And those impacts in other countries can impact the U.S. consumer through higher prices if we have increased scarcity. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Some food and beverage suppliers are already thinking about how this is going to hurt supply chains all over the world. Andrea Illy, chief executive officer of Illy Cafe, has been very vocal about the threat of climate change to his company's coffee supply. In California, there is something uh, that in the last three years, there has been from zero to 16, 1616 uh, new coffee plantation in Southern California. Wow. So this is one consequence of climate change because, uh, you know, it will be more and more, uh, uh, not only, uh, let's say, better, uh, but necessary to uh, move to higher latitudes to produce coffee. So California, besides Hawaii, which is already, uh, you know, a state producing uh, uh, coffee in the United States, you know, that would now California and in the future will be probably Florida and all the south of uh, United States will be becoming producing uh, producing coffee. It's interesting. After China, China was not a producing country. Now it is, and uh, and so on. Climate change is already impacting coffee agriculture uh, in two ways. First, quality is impacted, and then productivity is impacted. It's already happening now since decades, and is the biggest threat because temperature is increasing and the effects on uh, on agriculture are exponential. So what we can observe already now, which is the number of uh, quality problems or uh, uh, kind of cutting off uh, the any effort of to increase production in producing countries due to adverse climatic conditions, this is only the beginning. We need to adapt immediately because from now to 2050, only half, half of the currently suitable land will still be suitable. So we will need, uh, by adapting, to change the agronomical practices first, as a very first initiative. Second initiative, we will need to boost the amount of uh, different cultivars, so plants, type of plants that can be cultivated. There is an extremely poor 
biodiversity in the coffee, uh, let's say, genomics, or, or let's say the gen genetic diversity. We need to boost that in order to, like Colombia did, uh, develop uh, new cultivars which are not only better in quality and more productive, but resistant to the effects of climate change. And the third initiative, we will need to migrate plantations to new areas of production, including California, Florida, and or in the producing countries to higher latitudes. This needs to be made now because 30 years is nothing in coffee agriculture. As a matter of fact, 30 years is the average life of one coffee plant. And in order for a new coffee plant to be fully productive, you need uh, four years. Because, you know, you cannot stop producing and then wait for four years. So you have to make a, a rolling renewal of your plantation. So it will take 20 years in order to, to, to replace all the plants in one coffee plantation. So it's a long process. And it, it, this process requires enormous resources in terms of knowledge, in terms of uh, infrastructure, so investments, and in terms of uh, people. So there are plenty of projects undergoing but I'm not sure about how strong in terms of uh, critical mass, in terms of uh, funding, in terms of time to market, and even in terms of uh, coordination these, products, uh, these projects are. Agricultural disasters won't just impact food. They'll also hit the clothes we wear. Cotton, for example, is a vital input for textiles in the retail industry. Again, it's easy to forget what actually goes into the clothes we buy in stores. But cotton, too, is in danger from climate change. That's on top of the fact that the fashion industry is already using up the resource at a rate that may leave us without enough cotton to feed demand. We reached out to Cecilia Strumblad-Branston, a sustainability business expert at H&M who works on the circular economy and sustainable materials. I think at H&M we said that we need to change the way that fashion is made and enjoyed today. We cannot really continue uh, to produce and use uh, textiles and materials in the same way, but we need to decouple our growth and, and the growth of the industry as such uh, from the use of, of finite virgin materials. So we really see that we need this systemic change uh, in, the, in the fashion industry. And that's something that we will feel that if we don't make this change, uh, we will not be successful in the future. So this is really our main driving force. And of course, that will mean that we will make investments short term, but long term, that will really be the only way uh, to stay successful. I think long term, we see that if we continue to use the resources that we do in the same way as we do today, there will not be enough cotton, for example, there will not be enough oil-based polyester because there will be a too hard competition in terms of, uh, uh, of resources with increased population and increased demand. So we really see that we need to move away from, from the way that fashion is made and enjoyed today. And we need to move away from the use of finite virgin resources and, and replace those with recycled where possible. So we also said that we want to prioritize recycled materials wherever we can, and complement that with materials that have been sustainably sourced. H&M has pledged that 100% of its materials will be recycled or sustainably sourced by 2030. Right now, 26% of products come from those sources. 
The fast fashion giant is just one example of corporations taking action against the environmental risks they see on the horizon. Companies I cover are making similar moves. Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and AB InBev, for example, take sustainability initiatives really seriously because without water, there wouldn't be any Coke. Businesses are working on this because they see it's vital to the survival of industry. But when it comes down to it, it's hard for publicly traded companies to balance out short-term losses with longer-term gains. That's often where the government comes in. The government's helped out in this respect before. In the 1930s, the Great Plains suffered from a major drought, plus over-farming, that reduced the protection for the fertile topsoil. It turned the whole region into a giant dust bowl. Franklin Roosevelt made it a mission to end the man-made ecological disaster, according to a story written by Carson Vaughn for the Weather Channel. The U.S. Forest Service, with other groups, planted more than 220 million trees. The trees created wind barriers and helped to keep the better soil from being displaced. But like many infrastructure projects from around that time, the fix is starting to wear thin. Many farmers have cut down their windbreaks. Farming's a tough business, and many of them are struggling to break even, let alone make a profit. That makes cash-earning crops much more appealing than FDR's trees. Crops will likely make more money now, but it could be a serious problem if climate change expectations come to fruition. A 2015 study cited in the article by researchers at NASA, Columbia University, and Cornell University say that without some kind of intervention, they expect to see a mega drought. The scientists predict it will happen sometime between 2050 and 2099, and they say it'll last a generation. Climate change has become a partisan issue, but if it continues unchecked, it will impact the production and price of many of the products we all count on as consumers. And it may not be enough to look for technological band-aids after the fact. Right. The thing about agriculture is plants take time to grow. Like Illy said, coffee plants have to mature for years before they can be used for the cappuccinos you pick up at your local coffee shop. So what can we do? Peter Howard gave us his thoughts. I think the most important thing people can do is call their representative to say, hey, look, I support internalizing this price of carbon. I believe in free markets and an efficient economy. And... This is not socialism. This is like actually taxing a cost that we're actually giving away for free. Um, And that's not efficient according to economics and free market theory. That's the first thing I would say. Just, you know, um, it's it's hard. And I feel for consumers because I'm a consumer and I find it challenging. I study this all day. It's very difficult to figure out what's most carbon intensive. That being said, there are clearly areas where you can improve in your life um, to reduce your carbon footprint. So um, obviously not driving as much is and airplane flights where you don't have to fly as much uh, is going to reduce your carbon footprint. That being said, um, we should remember that there is a challenge, which is that we live in a society that does not internalize the price of carbon. And as a consequence, you know, we do fly and we are required to fly. So you should also keep that in mind, you know, that you can't I fly frequently and I try to do my best. I don't want to, I'm not a preacher out there. I'm not trying to like tell people how to live their life. I mean, I think you have to make your choices and it's the government's job actually to set the correct signals. 
if the markets are working correctly and internalizing the correct costs of climate change, you wouldn't have to do this. You would make them on your own as a free citizen, um, internalizing the true cost and balancing what you think the benefits are for yourself versus the costs. Since we don't do that, you're kind of the government's sort of allowing there to be false market signals where we believe it's really cheap to use up lots of carbon-intensive goods. And the reason probably it's hard to always think of carbon-intensive goods is because we don't actually ever see what goes into them. I can speak more to agricultural goods because I have a background also in agriculture. Um, Just remember that every time you buy an agricultural good, there is machinery involved in producing that. There is fertilizer. There is... um, Then somebody has to transport to the store... Right, So there's an entire network system built up. Every good that you buy in a store has some level of carbon in it because you at minimum have to get it there. So you know it's very hard to internalize that all in your mind. I mean, the obvious ones are obviously the bigger so- biggest sources of energy are energy use and transportation. So if you can minimize those two things and be conscious of those two things, you're going to be doing, that's a good first start, I would say. And that's where I would focus in those two areas. You can also think of that with with every good, every good. It's not just agriculture. I'm not trying to beat up on agriculture. It's just what I know the most about. But every good has this issue. Um, And you might not be, you might be surprised by the inputs that go into this stuff. Um, and how far away they go. We have a global marketplace. Um, That's why we need a price signal. We'll leave you with that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Material World. For more, check us out on Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, or wherever you listen to shows like this. For more of our regular coverage, I'm on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan and Lindsay's at L.C. Rupp. Material World is produced by Magnus Henriksen and Liz Smith. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. We'll be back in two weeks. Countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.